This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. So for the record, there were 5,587 votes in the runoff for president. Bart Barber received 3,401. That is 60.87%. Tom Askell, 2,172. That's 38.88%. Chair declares the winner to be Bart Barber, the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's Ed Litton, the outgoing president of the Southern Baptist Convention, announcing Tuesday the election of the SBC's next president, Bart Barber. Well, that's just one of the newsmaking events coming out of Anaheim, California, where the Southern Baptist Convention is holding its annual meeting. They are also considering whether or not to cut ties with Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church one of their largest congregations, and of course there's the ongoing scandal of sexual abuse. Are they going to take action to right some of the wrongs done by the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. What mattered most at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, the sexual abuse recommendations or the SBC presidential election? I think the sexual abuse uh, recommendations was way more important, but I say that knowing that to some degree, the degree to which work would proceed on those recommendations and the enthusiasm depended largely on the outcome of the presidential election because the president is the, in the SBC system, the president is the person who appoints the Committee on Committees, Committee on Nominations and other things that pick the trustees and the people who run the SBC. So to some degree, even though he would only a point, say, 20 to 25 percent, depending on the institution of the trustees, you still would have had a change in direction. Last year, the Conservative Baptist Network used the theme that they were the pirates who were coming to change the direction of the ship. And the sexual abuse probe and scandal was one of the issues that was being discussed. (laughs) So thus, if we had had a new captain of the ship, that would have affected where the ship went on those recommendations. But I think in long terms, and we really have to focus on the recommendations and what the Southern Baptist Convention is able to pull off here in terms of addressing the sexual abuse issues within the structures of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now that last point is something you and I have discussed a lot, including just a couple of weeks ago, I just wrote a column and shipped it this morning to the syndicate on this. I mean, the key point, once again, is that for Southern Baptists, there's no layer of authority and infrastructure between the local autonomous church and the actual institutions of the Southern Baptist Convention. There's nobody else involved in the ordination The ordaining, the hiring, and the firing of clergy is totally up to the local church. The ownership of property, 
totally up to the local church. So you don't have any of the structures that we would see in Methodism, the Episcopal Church, the Catholic Church, especially with the diocese. And we've all watched the decades of scandals over sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. And most of the lawsuits and the fighting is at the level of the diocese, where there's no equivalent in Baptist life. So now we're going to see what happens when they set up with a third-party firm maintaining the database that will, I'm reading now from the resolution, a third-party firm maintaining the database that will review all submissions to ensure they meet the proper evidentiary standard in terms of keeping a list of sexual abusers and alerting Southern Baptists to them. A third party maintaining the list, does that exclude the Southern Baptist Convention itself from potential lawsuits? Does it exclude the executive committee of the Southern Baptist? Lots of questions still down the road. But as several people said, this was probably the only first steps that the SBC could take in light of its polity to be able to deal with this. I led my column this week with the fact that before this thing came to the floor, there was a friendly amendment to it. And the amendment said that the, the new abuse reform implementation task force would seek to use, and here's the important, the money quote, best practices in keeping with Southern Baptist church polity. In other words, whatever this task force does, they have to be able to justify it in light of how the Southern Baptist Convention does its work and its ministry. To your knowledge, was the executive committee of the SBC, and that's, this report was really about the action and inaction of the executive committee. The guidepost report, the yeah. guidepost report that came out about a month ago. And certain of its members, and no details are forthcoming that I could see, has the convention meeting had anything to say to that committee oh, or to its members? They elected new officers, and of course they've had resignations from the executive committee, and they had another roll-off of, you know, I think 20%, maybe 25% of the executive committee members with new nominations for people to take their place. So on one level, it was business as usual with the executive committee this year. But business as usual involves the potential for change. And there certainly were changes. And the people elected officers of the new executive committee were all people who were committed to making an attempt at a reform process on this issue. Is it accurate to call it a house cleaning? Not yet. I mean, but certainly that's the direction things are going. They didn't you remember, I think I wondered what would happen if the convention chose as a one-time thing to clean out the entire executive committee and start over. And they didn't do that. But resignations have removed many of the most controversial figures. And certainly with new officers, the task force working on this issue that has been set up with the authority of the annual convention and the ultimate authority in Southern Baptist life is this once a year meeting of church messengers. That's the power base. The executive committee is supposed to be working for them. So if you have an overwhelming vote to pass the re recommendations for reforms on this issue, 
the executive committee would be expected to honor it and follow it. And the new leadership is all people that have said that they're gung-ho about doing that. So you've been doing a lot of reading of the coverage of this. What are some bright spots in the coverage of what's happened so far? Very significant, probably the most significant meeting for the Southern Baptists since what they call the conservative takeover. Well, I think that if you look at this from the the perspective of Get Religion, the main thing we have to say about the coverage is the coverage we saw is what happens when newsrooms hire professional religion writers and send them to an event and let them do their job. I mean, you can pick gnats and you can ask questions about some of the angles taken in this story. I'm sure we're going to get here for a second to the Rick Warren issue and the Saddleback issue. The New York Times seemed to think that was the most important thing that happened at this convention in terms of leading with it. And we're talking about whether or not Saddleback should be disciplined or even removed from fellowship with the SBC because it has ordained women as pastors, while the church leadership has also made it clear that its interpretation of Scripture is that you should not have women serving as senior pastors in points of authority as leaders over the congregation and the rest of the staff. So what we have here is a debate, which we can talk about here in a while, a debate over the meaning of the word pastor and whether that needs to be reviewed. In the past, we've had disputes of this kind over the ordination of women in the SBC, but it's tended to be at the level of the association, maybe the state convention, when you take probably the best-known Southern Baptist in America, in the world after Billy Graham, and people raise questions about whether his church, now he's retiring, of course, but the church he started, Saddleback, gets to stay in the Southern Baptist Convention, and people want to vote to toss them out, and that motion was defeated. I agree that's a big story, but there's no question that the sexual abuse story in the presidential election is the most important things that happened at this convention. Well, let's just, since we're on it, let's just skip ahead to the, the appearance of Rick Warren there yeah. at the Southern Baptist Convention. The, the, well, the meeting was essentially held in his in his backyard, yeah. and so he felt, I, I'm sure, felt compelled to appear and at least have his say. And I think they gave him kind of an unprecedented amount of time at the floor mic yeah. in order yeah. to speak there. I spoke with Bob Smetana yesterday of Religion News Service, and the way he described it, now this was before Warren had appeared, this debate over what does the word pastor mean has its own kind of basic Southern Baptist subtleties to it. And do you think that 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 particular debate is getting explained well enough in the coverage? Well, there was, because we had professional religion writers there, we certainly saw um, people touch on the issues that needed to be mentioned. But let me let me point out here, and I think, obviously, you were talking to Bob Smetana, a Nashville pro who at one point worked for an agency linked to the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm sure that what he said was accurate. One of the most interesting things that happened, though, was the tweets and the comments by Southern Baptist Seminary President Al Mohler, who made it clear that the Baptist faith and message, which is a kind of kind of confession, doctrine, catechism, document, whatever, for the Southern Baptist Convention. 
That explicitly says women may not serve as pastors. Saddleback, within that, wanted to say our interpretation of the Scripture is that means they can't be senior pastors with authority over the entire congregation and over other ordained people, men on the staff, that senior pastors must be men. Now, here's the subtlety of all this. This gets you back into centuries of Baptist history. Al Mohler is a very articulate defender of a Reformed theological perspective within Baptist life, and as such, he has been accused at times of trying to turn Southern Baptists into semi-Presbyterians with a kind of confessional authority to enforce doctrinal standards that other Baptists believe they're free to pick and choose and to have their own definitions. And so to some degree, who gets to interpret that inerrant Bible is something Baptists have always kind of agreed to disagree or agree to agree without a whole lot of arguments on. So he raised the issue and at one point explicitly said, Southern Baptists are a confessional people. Now, yeah, that's true if they have the votes to establish that. But at the same time, when you look at Baptist history, there's a lot of different schools of Baptist thought on that issue. It strikes me, is this kind of a moment for the Southern Baptists? Of, like, who's the real Southern Baptist, Rick Warren or Al Mohler? <laughs> I, I wouldn't put it there. Those two men know each other real well. Plus, Rick Warren just announced his own retirement, and we don't know what he'll be doing and what connection he'll have with the Southern Baptist Convention after that. But I do think Moeller was raising the issue again of whether the Baptist faith and message has a kind of creedal impact on Southern Baptist, or whether a Baptist tradition—I mean, remember, Southern Baptists range from Bill Clinton to Pat Robertson and a lot of different kinds of people in between— well, who gets to decide what it means to be a Southern Baptist? What the doctrinal content of that is? Is it the local congregation? Is it the regional association? We've seen some cases of that. Is it a state convention? Is it the national convention? Do you have to be thrown out of all four levels of Baptist life to be really out of the tent? That issue has never really been settled. And I would note that on issues of racism, we have had major steps in recent years. If you want to defend what the Southern Baptist Convention has clearly said about race, they have thrown churches out for making statements that the convention considers a violation of its statements on race. And they've thrown these ultra-conservative right-wing churches out of the convention. Well, that's certainly an enforcement of a doctrinal standard on race. Are we now looking at a similar enforcement of a doctrinal statement on the ordination of women? And what happens with this debate between anyone with the reverend in front of their name has the same stature as a pastor, or whether or not we're talking about senior pastors? people with authority over the entire staff and the entire congregation. At one point during the, 
the Twitter fest that was the craziness of the Southern Baptist Convention yesterday, I tweeted out, here's my suggestion. Let's go back to bishops, priests, and deacons. How about it? And nobody took me up on that. <laughs> you know, but of course, that was me as a former Southern Baptist kind of tweaking some of the people involved in this debate in terms of biblical language on these issues. What happened to bishops, you know? What happened to, to priests? But we don't want to get pulled off into that wormhole. You, you had mentioned that the New York Times was kind of going after the shiny object of Rick Warren yeah. there. Is there really, notwithstanding what Warren is doing at his single congregation, he's got a lot of satellites, but it's still just one congregation, large as it is. Is there a push in the Southern Baptist Convention for the return of female pastors? I am not aware of any major trend in that direction. Of course, the so-called moderate churches and the churches connected with the cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and that's my own background, by the way, before I made my, my journey to orthodoxy, there's no question that on that side of the convention, there are people who take this anti-confessional stance, and this the local believer, the local church, the individual believer gets to make all these decisions about reading the Bible, sola scriptura, reading it for themselves. But I'm not aware of this being a major trend. At the same time, when you look at changes among young evangelicals, on a lot of different issues, and I would say certainly from the viewpoint of people sitting in elite newsrooms, there ought to be a war over that issue in the eyes of many reporters and in the eyes of many other evangelical institutions these days, just as some of those people would favor other changes related to the sexual revolution broadly defined. But I'm not aware of this being a massive fight at this moment. You, you have all kinds of men and women totally committed to reforming the convention's practices on sexual abuse who are still not in favor of the ordination of women as pastors and certainly not as senior pastors with authority over entire congregations. Now, the, the question here is, what happens when you ordain someone who is a hospital chaplain? What happens when you ordain someone who, not to be stereotypical here, but someone who directs music or leads the children's ministry or is a minister of education to one degree or another. Is that the same thing as ordaining someone to be the senior pastor of a church? You can get into arguments about that. At the same time, don't forget, it's supposed to be the local church that ordains clergy, hires, and fires them. And the kind of the left half of the convention says, yeah, and that should even apply to women. Before we go on to the president and his, or the newly elected president and the kind of coverage he's getting, what impact do you think that West Coast setting had on the election of Bart Barber? Well, that's a huge question, and I can think of some practical questions related to it. For example, the number of votes last year were almost double what they were this year. I think it's safe to say that any time the Southern Baptist Convention meets outside the range of a church van or bus, meaning the Bible Belt and the extended Bible Belt, any time you get out of that safe one-day travel in a van 
distance, you're going to have much smaller attendance. And it's going to be harder for smaller churches to be able to afford to send people. So here's the question. I don't know how you would be able to get a poll on this or if people would be honest about it. I think it's a, a very interesting issue looking to the future. How many of the messengers who went to Anaheim received some sort of financial aid to make the journey out there and stay in a convention hotel or some place nearby? We're in the midst of some radical inflation right now on a host of different levels. For example, were there lobby groups on, shall we call it, the establishment and the pirate side of this election fight, were there lobby groups who raised money to fund messengers to go? And I don't know whether there's any spoken or unspoken Southern Baptist rules about doing that. I think it's one thing when a church helps pay for its messengers to go, but what happens if you started having outside groups raising money to pay for airplane tickets? Now, let me flip that around. I am sure that leaders of the conservative Baptist network, the pirates in this scenario, using their own language from last year, if they raised money to send messengers, I'm sure they would say that the Southern Baptist establishment gets to send hundreds and maybe thousands of people to the meeting because those people work for Southern Baptist seminaries, schools, boards, agencies, etc., and thus for them it's work-related travel. And thus actual Southern Baptist budgets pay to send them out there. I'm sure you would have people on the conservative half of the convention or the more conservative half of a conservative convention. I think you would have them raise that question. Well, if they get to send everybody on the ticket you know, of Southern Baptist leadership positions and stuff like that, why don't we get to raise money to send our people? That, to me, would be an interesting issue to follow up here in the weeks and months after this meeting. So what do we know about Bart Barber? A classic kind of Southern Baptist leader. You, you tend to have Southern Baptist presidents who are megachurch leaders. They lead huge, growing churches. Or you have kind of loyal Southern Baptist pastors who are extremely well-connected in their state or in their region. And Barber is certainly that in the state of Texas. And as you have heard me wisecrack as someone who was raised Southern Baptist, when you look at statistics and money and sheer clout, I've always heard it said that Texas is the wallet on which the Southern Baptist Convention sits. And what they mean there is there are just so many Baptist churches in Texas that their clout, they don't even need to punch above their weight. Their weight is enough. And when it comes to having a Texan elected as president every couple of years, that should surprise no one who knows anything about Southern Baptist life. So I think what we have here, this is a guy who has pledged to try to keep peace, try to listen to everybody. At the same time, he's highly identified with efforts to seek some kind of working reform on sexual abuse. I don't know if he has the current president, Ed Litton, who only served one year. They normally get elected twice. 
but Ed Litton chose to step down. I don't know if he has Litton's high-profile identification with the growing number of black churches and interracial churches within the SBC. That would be an interesting question to ask about him. And for all I know, at his press conference today, he was asked about that very specifically. We'll have to see as we continue to watch the coverage. Would you say that his election represents kind of staying the course? Oh, certainly. He certainly is identified as an establishment man, and that means he represents the style of Southern Baptist conservatism that's been in place in seminaries and agencies and elsewhere for quite some time. Now, the conservative Baptist network says because of primarily critical race theory, and they would say ordination of women, that those people have been seized by wokeism and that the the ship needs to be steered in a new direction. You and I have said in the past, it's a really interesting world when all of a sudden President Al Mohler of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville is considered some kind of liberal, when Al Mohler is considered woke. That's an interesting lens through which to view him. Has that faction in the, and it's it's got several different groups kind of in a loose yeah. association, but has that faction that has been, for instance, saying things like Al Mohler is woke when anyone who yeah. <laughs> casually listens to him can tell he isn't, has it been repudiated by this convention? Remember what I just said. This was on the West Coast. To what degree could they get all their people there? I think you will say that people, once again, looking at next year, I believe the convention's in uh, in Nolens, New Orleans, for people who didn't grow up on the Texas Gulf Coast. Let's see what happens, because Nolens is a whole lot closer to a bunch of Bible Belt churches all across the South. So let's see what happens in next year's convention. Watch the numbers of people who made it to the convention. This year they had about half as many voters as they did last year. That had to affect the election. So whether they've been repudiated, I don't know. They certainly had a bad convention. But I think they would say that having it based on the West Coast hurt them in terms of getting the vote out. Does this, the actions of this convention with respect to the sexual abuse scandal, should it, in media coverage, provide an opportunity to highlight the difference between the sexual abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention and the sexual abuse scandal in Roman Catholicism in that, well, within 12 months, you can sweep the, the people who've been causing the problems out of office. You well, can't do that in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, yeah, but let, let's see if local congregations cooperate with this effort and whether this, this work really gets rolling. And also we're dealing, of course, with infinitely smaller numbers you know, in terms of the Southern Baptist, or I should say, numbers that we know of. What happens when you create a genuine third-party task force-related website and people can start calling in? We'll have to see what happens. We'll get to have to see whether mission boards and seminaries and other Baptist institutions now have people making charges against them. That's what I kind of predicted a couple of weeks ago. We won't know the size of the scandal until people feel free to file accusations against the major Baptist institutions 
and we may begin to see things happening at the local church level. To me, the question is, at what point are reporters going to look at the numbers here? And I think the numbers are very serious, and I think the Houston Baptist Chronicle and the others that dug these numbers out did incredible journalism that needs to be saluted. At the same time, when are we going to see these numbers compared with what's happening in other denominations? Do we even know what's happening in other Protestant denominations? And also, just to be honest about it, how do these numbers compare with sexual abuse accusations in public schools and in secular institutions or in sporting groups and networks? I've always wondered, what are the actual numbers in public schools in terms of accusations on these totals? I think a lot of journalists just don't think that's, quote unquote, as sexy a story as going after people in pulpits. But if you're trying to protect children, that's another valid story to go after. Now, I'm curious, do you think that everything at this meeting so far has been covered thoroughly enough? Do you think the right questions have oh. been answered on the th- kind of the three things or the four things we've been discussing? The religion writers that were there are going to walk away from this with hours of interviews, all kinds of new phone numbers, all kinds of contacts. The press room for this event, there, there'd be an interesting statistic. How many chairs were in the newsroom for this event compared to say, conventions over the last decade. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was four or 500% larger for this convention. So I think we're going to continue to see coverage from the people who, the logical places, as we put it a couple of weeks ago, location, location, location. Look for the Houston Chronicle. Look for the two reporters, one of them a former student of mine, who represented the Gannett newspaper chain there for the Nashville Tennessean the Memphis Commercial Appeal, look for the logical newspapers to continue covering this big time, whether Acela's zone newsrooms continue to cover it, I don't know. But boy, there are all, let me just name a couple of other issues. As someone who's covered sexual abuse issues in Southern Baptist Convention and among evangelicals for several decades, One of the things that needs to come out of this is some sort of look at the setting for much of this abuse, which is pastors trying to do pastoral counseling that they may not be qualified to do. And the pastoral counseling issue and what people call transference, you know, when a woman is being counseled by a male pastor with authority over her, that's something that people need to look at. I think we need to be asking questions about existing models of youth work. And I know there are questions being raised about Baptist and evangelical youth camps and some of the other things and the movements that swirl around them. So there's a lot that can come out of this in terms of future coverage, and I expect the professionals on the beat to continue to try to make a case to cover it. And let's hear it for them. I mean, I'll be glad to critique some of the results, but there's no question that the pros got to go to this convention And thus, we saw professional religion beat coverage of this event. People may argue about some of the fine points of that, but I think everybody would agree that this was a religion beat story, and it was a good thing that newsrooms sent religion beat professionals to cover it. This handful of Houston Chronicle reporters 
that really did the heavy right. lifting for the rest of the press. In now, at six part, I imagine it's going to go on to be a book. Their abuse of faith investigation. Yeah. Are these reporters? I think there are three or four of them. Are they uh, the kind of reporters you want to see get up into the Acela zone out of Houston and, and actually do some good reporting on religion? Well, in in the case of that investigation, one of the main writers was a professional investigative reporter, not a religion beat reporter so much. Robert Downen, another one of the key bylines, is someone who covered religion a lot, and I think they have pulled him off now onto some other investigations of other topics. So we'll have to see what happens at the Houston Chronicle. But I'll be stunned if Robert Downen and some of the other people involved in this don't have books published on this. Meanwhile, the new religion writer, Liam Adams, in Nashville and Catherine Burgess in Memphis had a chance to really build within their news organization some support for coverage of this issue, and I hope that they get to carry on. But you know what? To some degree, until this cracks the national networks, until this shows up as a regular, important item that let's say someone like Molly Hemingway gets to debate as a part of coverage at the 6 p.m. news for Fox and wherever else, until it reaches that level of the media, it hasn't received enough coverage. And I would point out that it's that level of media where we still don't have networks, I mean. We don't have professional religion writers doing television and multimedia-centered work. So... Yeah, this story got covered by the pros, but as I have argued for 40 years, we need more pros. We need more newsrooms willing to hire professionals to do this work and then letting them do their jobs. So why are the networks, and here we're talking about the cable networks, why are they, they're not ignoring it, but they're certainly not giving it the kind of press that it probably needs, given the number of stories here? I can't answer that question. A decade or two ago, I interviewed the late Peter Jennings. He noted that their professional religion reporter, her work had the highest viewer response of any beat in their newsroom. Yet the minute they needed to cut back for financial reasons, his staff in Washington, D.C., the first thing they cut was the religion beat. Why? Why is religion a subject that turns so many upper-level journalists, broadcasters, etc., into pillars of salt? Why? I don't know. I've been writing about it now since I was in my 20s, and I still can't answer that question. Bill Moyers of CBS, to repeat a quote I've used with you many times, he thinks on one level these people are simply tone deaf to the music of religion, and they don't get it. They don't understand why religion matters. The flip side of that coin is that they care about religion when it affects politics, and politics alone, because politics is how many journalists view the real world. That's the real lens for how they think important things happen in the world, so religion is important if it affects partisan politics. And obviously, 
I believe that's the wrong attitude, and that skews coverage. The bigger the organization, the more likely it is to skew that issue and makes them have trouble, to name the website, they have trouble getting religion. About 30 seconds, where does this story go from here? We have to start watching to see who files cases with this, this task force and with this website. How many lawsuits do we see? What kinds of lawsuits do we see? As I said before, reporters need to be asking, what major Southern Baptist institutions do I have near my newsroom, and what do I need to do to cover them? Because location, 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 everything's about to get really local. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you again. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.